everyone. Welcome to episode 83 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. It's a beautiful day here in Guilford. Yes, it is. There's like almost a little kiss of fall in the air. A touch. Yes. Yeah. And Chris and I are both professed fall lovers, so it brings a smile to my face when it starts to get cool in the evenings and at night. And that humidity goes away. Yes. (laughs) We get our energy back. Yes. (laughs) So we have a couple things we want to talk about before we get into our regular segments. First, a quick shout out. Thank you to our new Patreon patron, Carol. Thanks, Carol. Thank you so much. Really excited to have you as a new patron. Yes. We appreciate it so much. We We really really do. do. Yeah, we just got a new toy. It's called a, is it called a gimbal? Yeah. For um, doing videos for our YouTube channel. Yeah, with the cell phone. Yeah. It'll help with stability, especially when we're out and about doing Biblio adventures. Right. We're hoping to take you all with us more on Biblio adventures. So stay tuned for that. We also lost a beloved icon in the book world. Yes. Last week. Toni Morrison, as most of you probably have heard, passed away at the age of 88. Yeah, she lived a good life. She did. She lived a really good long life and did so much for the world of books and for women and for African Americans and for literature, literary criticism. Yeah, she was an amazing individual, and it's been really interesting to watch other authors talk about what an influence she had on their writing. Yeah. You know, I've been really, admittedly, slightly obsessed with reading about her, and I have to make a confession, which is I have never read Toni Morrison. So ironically, a couple weeks before she passed away, I happened to be at Book Trader, and I texted our buddy Russell... From Ink and Paper blog, blog. You, he has a great um, booktube channel. If you're not watching, we encourage you to do that. And I said, where do I start? And he said, the bluest eye, definitely. And lo and behold, they had a copy. So I have my copy of the bluest eye sitting here. And awesome. I plan to dig into it very soon. Cool. Now, I did read, I read Sula and Beloved. And the bluest eye has been on my list forever to read. Because that is one that so many people have loved and that, It turned a lot of people into writers, too, from what I've heard. Right. And it was her first novel. So that's kind of interesting also that her first novel will be one that people are recommending out of all of hers, you know? Right. I was in a bookstore the day that I heard she died, and there were Toni Morrison books right there. I was planning on just visiting this bookstore. I wasn't planning on buying books, but I thought (laughs) I have to buy a Toni Morrison. So I bought Song of Solomon. I can't wait to read it. And just a quick shout out, the Books on the Nightstand fan page on Facebook, and then they also have a Goodreads page. A couple people are getting together to do a reading of Song of Solomon starting September 1st. So if you want to do it as a buddy read with a bunch of really cool people, check those two sites out and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Yeah, it's a really great way, I think, to tackle her reading because I think when what I have heard about reading Toni Morrison is you really want to talk about it yeah. when you do. So I think it's fabulous that they're doing that. I might try to jump in on that. I I don't feel like I can get overcommitted right now, but right. I, I think it would be a great way to do it because I know there are going to be wonderful readers in right. that group. Yeah, so, I yeah. know. When I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I just bought the book. I totally want to do that. And I'm planning on it, but we'll see because yeah. I do have some reviews and some work projects to yeah. focus on. So what are you currently reading? You know, I'm currently reading two nonfiction books. Mm. I'm reading A Woman of No Importance 
the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. This is by Sonia Purnell. It just came out in March. And I first heard about this from our listener, Robin, out in California. Her mom read it, really loved it. It's about Virginia Hall. That is the spy's name, who lived an amazing life. Like, I'm just a couple chapters in, and wow. I mean, talk about a woman with gumption and wanting to get out there and do things. It reminded me of a couple... um, uh, kind of like a trope, you know, like the the woman, the young girl who comes from a slightly conservative family that's wealthy. The parents want her to marry for money or whatever, and she, of course, is an adventurous spirit and doesn't want that. And right, it's quite the life. Yeah, um, how fun. Yeah, once I I, I want to talk about it, you know, but I can't. <laughs> I don't want to give spoilers, even though it's nonfiction. I think spoilers are still. Yeah. Important to avoid. Oh, in a certain way, I think it's you can do more spoiling in a nonfiction because when you follow someone's life, there can be so many more twists and turns right. than one that's created. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially, you know, somebody like Virginia Hall, who I, I'd never heard of her. And, yeah. and obviously, this is a quote, untold story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how fun. So that, and um, I'm also reading a book uh, that's coming out later this month in August Becoming Willa Cather Creation and Career. Um, that's by Daryl W. Palmer, and it's coming out from the University of Nevada Press, and they sent me a, an unbound manuscript copy to read, which I really appreciate. Oh, nice. So that is a different look at Willa Cather's life and career, looking at her, her earlier years, her childhood and her early short stories, which often get overlooked or kind of dismissed. So I'm really enjoying it, and I have to say there are going to be a lot of great Cather books coming out in the coming months and years because her letters have become so accessible and because people who have been studying her for their entire career are writing books now. Wow. You know, there have been some over the years that have relied on old research, and so old stories just get repeated and some of these old stories have no documentation. I was going to say, I wonder if there are going to be some, you know, myths that are busted by this, yeah. do you think? Well, yeah. Well, one of the biggest myths already has been that Cather burned all her letters and asked people to burn her letters. You know, she never did. Mm. You know, she did burn letters from a friend after the friend passed away, but that's common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that was presented in the past is that she was so secretive and wanted to protect everything about her life, and, and there's just no evidence of that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there'll definitely be more things, good and bad, right. that come out. Right, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. so those are the two I'm reading and really enjoying. How about you? Awesome. I am reading, I'm finally getting to a book, like one of my cupcake books, and I'm very excited because <laughs> I've been doing some really heavy reading lately. And this one is called Midnight at the Blackbird Cafe. It's from Forge press I think and um, they sent me a copy thank you very much I've just literally just started it but one of the things that really drew me to it is it says it's perfect for fans of like water for chocolate and fried green tomatoes at the whistle oh my gosh that sounds delicious I know which are two (laughs) books that I loved and then interestingly I um, subscribed to Jess Montgomery's newsletter Mm -hmm. she's the author who was on episode 68 and wrote the book The Widows Mm -hmm. And she just wrote about this book in her newsletter. Oh, I think cool. they're friends. And I love the cover. The yeah, cover it's got is a beautiful cover. It is. It's yeah. a it's a pie that looks like blueberries, and then there's the crust is made into a bird yeah, on the top. Black it's really wow. beautiful. 
And it has a lot of magical realism. And, you know, those of listeners who've been around for a while know I love Alice Hoffman, and she has a lot of magical realism in her books. The premise is that a woman goes back to the hometown of her mother hmm. um, after her grandmother passes away. And then I think she takes over this cafe where there's a secret pie recipe. <laughs> so I'm very excited to dig into it because I, I need... Are just a really good little escapist book because yeah. I too have been in a lot of nonfiction and a lot of darkness. I yeah. feel like so. that sounds good. I might ask to borrow that one. Yeah, no. yeah, because I think there's a mystery component to it also. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was um somebody commented on I think it was Instagram, and I'm sorry I don't remember the person's name, but you had posted about that Laura Lipman book mm-hmm. that like you know you're, it was endangering your work life because yes. you just wanted to read, and somebody asked is. Chris or Emily reading yes. that one, and and you, you said Emily, and she's like, okay, good, I'm gonna check it out. And I thought, huh? Well, I know people have different reading tastes, but I I immediately thought, like, I wonder if this has to do with the cupcake versus the blood splatter. Oh, that's hilarious because I didn't think I thought that she just wanted to know, like yeah. inquiring minds want to know. It didn't occur to me. That's so funny because actually, it's probably a book you would be more likely to read. But yeah. Well, I'll talk about that because I did. Maybe actually that's a good segue okay. about what we just read. All right. I finished Lady in the Lake, and it's interesting because I heard Laura Lippman, the author, interviewed on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and I thought, I have to get this book. And I got it the next day, <laughs> and it was a page-turner. And I had gotten a copy of her book, Sunburn, which was the one that came out last year, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm looking at it. It's still on my shelf and never got to it. But I just opened this one up and lost myself in it straight away. It's written from different characters' points of view, but the main character is Maddie Schwartz. The whole book takes place in the year 1966. And Maddie is married and decides to leave her husband and then kind of stumbles upon solving the mystery of a girl who's just gone missing and ends up working at the local paper. And she really wants to become a writer, but it's not very friendly to female reporters at that time. So she kind of becomes an assistant Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But another woman goes missing who is the lady in the lake of the title. Okay. And so she decides she wants to try to solve this mystery, too. So she goes kind of rogue and starts (laughs) going out into the world. But what's interesting as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, women sometimes do have a way of being able to communicate, coming through the back door a little bit and get people to talk to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are plenty of men like that, too. But in this case, this is a woman, Maddie, who's able to do that. But what's so well done about this book, I mean, she's a fantastic writer, but the, the woman who is dead, the lady in the lake, is a character in the book. Cut from the grave or before she died? I'm not going to say any more than that. Okay. <laughs> so some of the chapters are the woman, the lady in the lake. Okay. And then the other thing that happens is Maddie will go out. For example, there's a scene where she goes to a baseball game. And then the next chapter is one of the baseball players. Just really quick, like a little three-page chapter or something Mm -hmm. like that. And the same thing, she'll go to a cafe and, you know, be talking to one of the other reporters she works with. And then the next chapter is the waitress that was serving them. Cool. I just love books like that. Yeah. It reminded me. Exactly. And it just gives you, and when it's a mystery, it just is such a way to put a little twist in there, right? Mm -hmm. 
It reminded me a little bit of Bill Clegg's book, Did You Ever Have a Family? Because he did that also. Mm-hmm. And it's the, really, I think his book was the first time I had experienced reading like that. So I highly recommend it. It will, as I posted on Instagram, put your work life in peril <laughs> or any of your relationships, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Do I want to talk to you? No, I want to read. Um, so it was a page turner. I read it really quickly. And I don't really want to say more because I don't want to spoil it. Oh, that sounds great. I I haven't read anything, I don't think, by Laura Lipman, but she's she has a bunch of books out already, she doesn't has she? A I ton mean, she's pretty prolific. Books. Yeah. The only other one I'd read, read of hers was Wild Lake. All of her books take place in Baltimore, at least all okay. of her fiction. She lives in Baltimore. She loves Baltimore. And you used to live there. I did. Yeah. So I read Wild Lake because that's a community in Columbia, Maryland where my daughter went to preschool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice and so connection. when I saw that, I was like, I have to read this one. Yeah. So so that's the only other book of hers that I've read. So she has a bunch of standalones. I should say that this book is a standalone. And then she has what it looks like almost a oh, 10 or a dozen books in the Tess Monahan series. Wow. That starts with the book Baltimore Blues. So if you read one of her books and you like her writing, you have plenty of backlist. The on the the blurb on the cover says she's one of the best novelists around, period. And that's from the Washington Post. Nice. So Very cool. How many have you read recently? Um, have you racked them up again? I have. Well, I've read three others that I was oh. going to talk about. No, two others that I was going to talk about. I've finished some others, but I figured I talked about them enough already. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, because I've, I've only read one. Okay. So go for it. I finished the audio of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. Cool. Um, I talked about this one also. Right, yeah. yeah. The last episode, if you're interested in this author and the woman that the story is about, definitely listen to episode 82. Yeah. Because so, Emily had yeah. some good content there. I won't get carried away because I did talk about it a lot in episode 82. Just to let people know, though, it is a true story. John Carreyrou is a reporter who broke... The story about Theranos, which was a startup in Silicon Valley run by Elizabeth Holmes. She was like the youngest ever to do a startup in Silicon Valley. I think she was 19 or something. And everything came crumbling down. And the one thing that I didn't really understand until I got to the end was the toxic culture she created in her workplace because things were unraveling and she wasn't telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't telling the truth about people's blood being tested, you know. So it was racking the up a lot of, of problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they had a lot of, you know, obviously they were just spending money like crazy. So the question that he leaves you with is, you know, was she a sociopath? Or was she not? Mm -hmm. And I've queried my friends that have read it. Two think she was a sociopath. One is kind of in my court, which is she had good intentions when she started. She was very inflexible. She wouldn't listen to her engineers, so she wouldn't change any of the things she wanted to do when they were saying this really can't be done. Yeah. And so things just started to unravel. And I think her youth and her desire to make it in Silicon Valley just plagued her and mm-hmm. she made really poor choices and that's my story and I'm sticking yeah. with it. Well I can imagine like if you're 19 yeah. and everybody's focusing on you and you're on the limelight about being the youngest and a, and a woman and 
Yeah. That, I can see how you could get really twisted up into that and become a bit delusional and rely on wishful thinking. Right. And I think if you're a sociopath, I feel like you start out with bad intentions, and I don't think she started out with bad intentions. Okay. So. All right. You know, it might be a little nitpicky, but that's, you know, I like to believe people are, for the most part, good, so... (laughs) And then the other one I finished was The Farm by Joanne Ramos, and that was a book I read for my book club. There are six of us in the book club. Two of them thought it was the worst book they'd ever read. Wow. I know. Harsh. It's really harsh. And I am in the court with one other person who thought it offered a lot of food for thought. I mean, it's a debut novel, so I don't think it was perfect by any stretch. Mm-hmm. I think she left a lot unanswered. I think the plot had problems. The ending was terrible. It was one of those, like, tie it up in a bow endings. But I thought the premise was really interesting, which is about using surrogates to grow babies for wealthy people. And really what the question is, who owns that baby inside your belly, and which leads to kind of who owns you as you're growing the baby. And wanting to control your environment and grow the perfect baby and make sure that nothing befalls this baby while it's inside of you. And then the moral is, you know, you can I know you can put people in this beautiful, (laughs) quiet, serene, remote place, you know, leaving all of their friends and family and in some cases their children behind and expect for nine months that they will just behave the way you want them to behave. And also, there's, like, a little tinge of Orange is the New Black in the sense of, like, when you put people in a place and they can't get out of it, you go a little cray-cray. And you Mm -hmm. also, like, relationships start to develop between the people who are being held captive in a lot of ways, you know? Right. I know. I mean, the whole idea of being a surrogate, I think it's a beautiful impulse to want to do that for people. Yeah. Um, but I do know there are a lot of stories about people doing it just for the money, and right. they may not be making the best choices. Right. And how think of the stress of, you know, if you're using a surrogate, it's for reasons that sometimes can be very stressful in your own life. Absolutely. And then you're worrying about, you know, this nine-month period of trying to raise your baby. So, yeah. Yeah. so I thought it was very thought-provoking. It was not a perfect book by any stretch, but I wouldn't say it was one of the worst books I ever read, as right. <laughs> some other people felt. So. Yeah. so those are the three that I wanted to talk about. What did right. you well, just read? I finished my... The classic that has been weighing on my mind since the 1990s, <laughs> Middle March by George Eliot. Woo! I feel like we Yay! should have fireworks go off or something. <laughs> so my initial pace that I set for myself to read 50 pages a day, that didn't pan out very well. So I didn't read it in the time frame that I had planned, but mm-hmm. that is... It sure seems like you got through it, though. You know what? I felt like I got through it at a really nice pace. It was comfortable, and, you know, even if I could only read a few pages before I passed out at night, I really enjoyed this novel. Good. Characters are all so wonderfully developed. You feel like you're watching real people, and the, the beautiful thing is it's one of those novels with characters where you can see them and their bad qualities, but you relate to those bad qualities sometimes. Yeah. And then you can kind of anticipate with some of the younger characters, like, oh, geez, how's that going to pan out? Um, But there's so much in this novel. And so it was written in, like, 1871-72 is when it was published, I should say. It was published in, I think, eight installments. Oh, wow. But it's set in the late 1820s, early 1830s when there was a big um, 
reform effort in the political system. It was also the early days of the Industrial Revolution. Not so the early days, kind of like the, the mid part where railroads were just coming to the country. Uh, there's a lot about marriage in this book. What makes a good marriage? What's a bad marriage? What is the point of marriage? The subjugation of women within marriage. There's a lot about uh, religion in terms of the good that it can do or not. Mm. Although it's not a... I mean, religion is in here because there are parsons and whatnot, but it's not heavily that. I, I don't want to mislead anyone. But I really think the beauty of the novel is in the way the time period comes to life and the characters. Mm. Wonderful characters. I just I could go on and on, but I won't. And I don't want to give any spoilers. Like, I realize this novel is almost 150 years old, but I had avoided reading about it for so long so because I didn't want to spoil it. And that's one of the reasons I finally read it, because I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not reading about George Eliot or Middlemarch because... You know, I want to read the novel right. first, so why don't you get on with reading the novel? So I'm so happy I read it. And I was so blown away by the idea of railroads coming to an established country. Because, like, here in America, our mythology of the railroad is the transcontinental railroad that brought the East and the West together and that, you know, helped settle the Western lands. You know, we don't really talk about how Chinese immigrants were abused in the building of it or how it invaded Native American lands. Like, that's not part of our national story at right. this point. But in this book, you have areas that have been settled for generations, and now all of a sudden the government wants to put railroad tracks through your land. So where does it take place? This takes place in central England. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. the Midlands. Yeah. Because yeah. so, when you were starting to talk about railroads, I was like, did that take place in the United States? I always thought it was a book that took place in England. Yeah, it's okay. in England. Yeah. And, and, and there's also medical stuff, too. So medical developments and how the yeah. medical field is changing. And George Eliot is actually a woman. Her birth name was Marianne Evans. So remember that name, because that could be a good trivia question. Yes. <laughs> What was George Eliot's real name? So now that you've finished it, are you? did you go out and read everything you've been dying to read? No, so I have not yet. I just yeah. haven't had the time. I did read Philippa Gregory had a nice afterwards that I did read. And I should point out that I listened to some of the audio when I was driving around because I did have a, a drive somewhere, like an hour or two. So that was great to listen to that. And I um, listened to it while I was shredding and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> But it's performed by Juliet Stevenson. And I say performed because she does an excellent job. Oh, fun. There are so many characters. There are at least probably like 20 main or central characters. And she does different voices for all of them, different vibes. It's it's a, an amazing performance. And does she use a British accent? Yeah. Oh, I love it. I think it. she's British she probably, herself. I did, shouldn't have said it but that way. she yeah. has all these then different accents. Right. Uh, oh, you know, fun. So really a delight. There was, a, I'm told, a PBS adaptation that was really good. Mm. So I'm going to watch that for sure. And then when I was just kind of looking around at adaptations, there's a new one that's happening right now. It's called Middlemarch, the series. It's by Rebecca Shoptow. It's ultimately going to have 70 episodes. Oh I think my. it's about halfway through now. It's a YouTube thing i oh, read wow. a review it was like in the new york times or washington post or you know an established newspaper shop town was an undergrad at yale in their film department and so she's doing and, and i guess the the what the reviewer was interested in is that 
it's a non-period adaptation. So oh. it's contemporary. It's kind of set. It's set in Middletown, or not Middletown, <laughs> Middlemarch, Connecticut, which is a fictional town. And a lot of the scenes are in dorm rooms. I think we should try to get to be extras in this, Chris. I think we should call her up and say, you got to have the cougars in a scene. Come on. So that was something <laughs> we I We could be old school moms or something. Oh, I don't know. What are the or characters? We could be the in cleaning there? wenches or something. <laughs> I've always said in those upstairs, downstairs, no, is that what you call them? Upstairs, down. Yeah. Yeah. Upstairs, downstairs shows that I would have been like the woman in the kitchen with the muck bucket, you know, like <laughs> cleaning things. I think I was that in a past life. <laughs> Too funny. How fun. Yeah, so, I yeah, didn't know March people were doing YouTube series. Oh, yeah. That's really There's cool. I'm so, so much. Out of I mean, it. YouTube is such a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much going on in there. In there, listen to me. <laughs> up in there. Uh, but anyway, Middle Get March up is... in there into some YouTube. You'll, With some Middle March. You'll never work again. Are you really? It's quite true. Yeah. So anyway, great characters. I'm so So glad much humanity. You because you can despise the character one page and then love them the next page. It's just fantastic. Good for you yeah. for tackling one. You know, it's funny. I remember one time on liter- the podcast Literary Disco, they were talking about summer reads and beach reads and that mm-hmm. whole idea that some people think it's when you just read, like, really simple books that aren't, books, yeah, yeah, they're not hard work. It's, you know, like the idea of taking a vacation in your brain also, mm-hmm. which is tends to be my way to go. But other people tackle really big books yeah. and, you know, books that have been on their shelves forever or big classics, things totally. like that. So good yeah, for you. Yeah, I'm really happy to have done it. Yeah. And I thought, wow, damn, and I read Gone with the Wind too. Yeah. Summer. Those are <laughs> two hefty books, man. She's hitting the 1,000-page <laughs> book club. <laughs> So did you have any Biblio adventures, or were you too busy at home you know uh, what? reading Middlemarch? I did have a Biblio adventure. I went to Bennett's Books. It's a used bookstore up in Deep River, mm. Connecticut. They've been around for a couple years already, and I've been you know meaning to get there, and I just hadn't. So I did take an afternoon off and uh, had a little mental health outing <laughs> nice. with myself. It's a really, it's a small store, but it's packed, but well-organized. And that, not that makes smelly. a difference. Yes. Not smelly. Oh, I did yeah. the smell test on a lot of books. Yeah. And that, so that's always a pleasant thing. But they had, um, you know, different sections. They had a pretty good kid section, it looked like. There was a young girl and her dad, and he was in one section, and she was really busy browsing in there. Young adults, uh, they have, like, a sci-fi fantasy section, mystery, fiction, history, everything you could want. That's where I picked up the copy of Song of Solomon, Samantha was the name of the bookseller who was working that day, and she was delightful. Nice. And the owner works the weekends. I guess he has a, a job during the week. So I didn't get to meet him. In Small World, a friend on Facebook, who is more of a friend of a friend, I've, I've only met her once or twice, who lives in Virginia, is a former co-worker of the guy who owns Bennett's. She, yeah. You know, she's like, what a small world. Yes. So it's kind of neat. So that was great. And for those of you in Connecticut, definitely check it out. In Deep River, if you haven't been there, it is such a charming historic town. It's even older than Guilford. Guilford mm-hmm. was established in 1639, and Deep River was established in 1635. Wow. It's older, cool. but they have a really charming Main Street with a really great coffee house. I'll have to get there. So I haven't yeah, gotten there yet. Really neat. So that was my 
main, or actually my only Biblio adventure this time. How about you? You were I'd, out of town yeah, again. Yeah, I was out of town again, <laughs> and I had a very quick moment to hop into a bookstore that I didn't know existed in Burlington. I went up to um, Burlington because my son Jacob was up there, and went up and helped him drive back, so I was really only up there for a minute, but was waiting to eat dinner because we went to go out to dinner on Friday night and the lines were already super long. We had an hour and a half wait for restaurants, so wow. I was like, well, I know how to kill some time <laughs> when I'm hangry, and I found this Phoenix Books, which I had oh. never seen in the times I've been to Burlington. It's a really lovely store, hmm. very well curated, lots of great new fiction, Really fun shelf talkers. I always like to see when I go to a new bookstore what the employees are writing about the different books. Yeah. And they had a cool thing posted, which I put out on our social media in the pictures that I posted of the bookstore, where there's going to be a Margaret Atwood event on September 10th where they're live streaming her from London at a local theater. That's so cool. Yeah. So look around. You're local bookstores because I don't know if other people are going to be participating in this event mm-hmm. I haven't seen it around here anywhere because that sure would be fun that would be fun so anyway that I thought that was really cool and they had um, a downstairs area they had a great kids area they had wonderful sidelines I was oh. very tempted but then our buzzer rang and we got to go to dinner next door <laughs> so <laughs> so again Phoenix Books in Burlington Vermont a couple upcoming jaunts to talk about awesome so one of them is one sadly i can't go to because i'm going to be out of town again but it's the brooklyn book festival which i've always wanted to go to it's i think they have like several days of things but the main event day is september 22nd so i just wanted to call it to people's attention Mm -hmm. i know we have a lot of listeners down in new york it's supposed to be a lot of fun they launched this festival in 2006 And it's grown quite significantly, I think, since then. So I thought I would just give it a little shout out and I'll put a link to their main page in the show notes so you can see their lineup of authors. Very cool. And they also have um, on the 21st, which is the day before, they have a children's day, too, which with a lot of really cool children's authors. So the Brooklyn Book Festival. And then I wanted to talk about one that's quite a ways away, but... Chris and I have signed up to go to the Hachette. Is that how you say it? Hachette. Hachette. I think Hachette. Um, Book Brunch in New York City on Saturday, October 26th. This is a ticketed event. We're meeting some friends. We would love to see more friends. Yeah. Come join us. Yeah. It's not inexpensive. I mean, it does. I think it's about $70. We already got our copies of Sally Field's memoir, In Pieces. She'll be the keynote speaker. Yeah. You get her book in advance to read, but then they also send you home. Well, first of all, you have tea and crumpets and things like that. Yeah, in the morning, and and then you have a lunch, a a box lunch. Yeah, and then you get a tote bag with a bunch of books to take home. So the main event is Sally Field. And then there's a conversation with Susanna Cahillan, author of Brain on Fire and the forthcoming book, The Great Pretender. Hmm. And then the fiction panel will feature Lenny Zumas, who wrote Red Clocks, which people have raved about. Kira Jane Buxton, who wrote Hollow Kingdom. Alex Harrow, who wrote The Ten Thousand Doors of January. And then the nonfiction panel includes Leslie Jameson, who wrote Make It Scream, Make It Burn, mm-hmm. Ryan Lee Dosti, author of Formation, 
Michael Denzel Smith, author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, and the forthcoming Stakes is High. So I'll put a link in the show notes to all this information and also to how to purchase tickets. I did see something came out on social media yesterday saying they're almost sold out. Okay. So I know it sells out every year. It hasn't yet, but it will. Our friend Linda, who's gone to this for a bunch of years, had said that they used to, I think, do it at their publishing house, but they've gone to bigger venues now. Right. And so this is an event that keeps growing each year. And it's from 10 to 3 on October 26th at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. In New York City. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought I would give it a shout out. And if anyone wants to join us there, we'd love to see you. Exciting. Well, I'm hoping to go to one um, this coming Monday, which will be the day before this episode airs. Um, But it's Jessica F. Kane. She's going to be at RJ, Julia, and Madison. And her new book is Rules for Visiting. Hmm. which is a story, it's a novel about a woman, I think she's in her 40s, who, she's a gardener, she's kind of a recluse introvert, and I'm not sure why she goes visiting people, but she does. How fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Our mutual friend Emily is working that event and had told me about it, and I looked up the novel, and it sounds really good. So I'm hoping to read that. Um, I won't read it before the event, but, yeah. Cool. I'm looking forward to that. And what do you have upcoming reads? Well, one of the used books that I bought at Bennett's Books when I was there is Vampires of Vermont. <laughs> News from the Edge. So this, I just love the cover. So the cover looks like a one of those, like, tabloid papers, you know, that you'd see with, like, you know, the vampire boy or the bat boy kind of thing. And so this is a series that a guy wrote, and he had two others... Where did they go? Because the titles are really funny. So this one is Vampires of Vermont. I love a good vampire story. So and it look it sounds funny. I read the first couple pages and it reminded me of what's her name? Holly Hunter. Yeah. Holly Hunt. Helen Hunt. Well, they're what's both. What's her name? I don't. Well, what are you talking about? The actress, <laughs> actor who was in the piano. That's know? Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter. Yeah. That name sounds odd to me. Anyway, but it reminded me of like a character of hers from the 90s who was like a secretary assistant type person and quick talking and anyway, totally sidebar, I guess. <laughs> but his other titles in this series, News from the Edge is the name of the series and Mark Sumner is the author's name, I should say. Another title is The Monster of Minnesota, Big Jelly Fills Belly with Four New Victims. <laughs> And then the other one is Insanity, comma, Illinois. Well, that's kind of yeah. vague. It's a normal day at the Globe Query. Calls, calls, calls. From a housewife menaced by her appliances, a farmer with a volcano in his apple orchard, a man with snow geese in his toilet, and, of course, a guy talking to God through his TV. Typical. <laughs> Insanity, <laughs> Illinois. So they just sound like silly, fun books, yeah. and I need some silly fun. Yes, it's good to laugh. So I hope to read that soon. And then, like I mentioned earlier, um, Song of Solomon, I'd love to be able to read that yeah. with the folks from the Books on the Nightstand fan page starting September 1st. Which is right around the corner, which yeah. is shocking Yeah, and it's like me. a low-pressure thing. I think they yeah. said, let's start the 1st and end by the 15th. Oh, 
Yeah, so okay. it's not any kind of rush yeah. to get it done or, you yeah. know. Yeah. So I have two on my upcoming reads. One is Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing by Alyssa Altman. She actually was just at RJ's in Madison last week. She's a foodie also. She had a blog about food that was award-winning. So I think it's kind of a food memoir and a memoir of a woman who had a difficult childhood, a difficult mother, I think. Hmm. Thus the title Motherland, maybe. Gotcha. And our buddy Emily, who you just mentioned, did this event at RJ last week, and okay. she said it's a very well-written book. She's a great writer. so, oh. And she handed it to me and said, this is right up your alley. <laughs> and then the other book I just got from the library is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames, which is the one that Alyssa Sweet recommended when okay. she was on. Okay, like, that sounds on, familiar. Yeah. All right. And it's getting really rave reviews also. I I've seen several of our mutual friends uh, give it uh, quite a number of stars. So I'm hoping to dig into that one as well. All right. So before we wrap up our segments here, we just wanted to say that we have an exciting read-along for the fall lined up. This will be probably October, early November. But we're not going to announce who the author is or what the book is until next episode, which will be kind of our back-to-school episode. Right. But newsletter subscribers will be getting a little bit of uh, advanced information this coming week. So if you're not a newsletter subscriber, you can just go to bookcougars.com and subscribe to our newsletter there. Yeah, and we should be getting the newsletter out in the next couple of days. So if you can't wait until episode 84 to hear what the next book is, Subscribe to the newsletter and you will... You'll be in the know. Yeah, you'll be in the know. The book cougars know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Happy Happy reading. reading. So up next, we have an author spotlight because Chris and I both read the book Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free by Linda K. Klein. This book came out in 2018, but the paperback was just released in July. So we thought we would talk to her about it. So enjoy. We are so excited today to have Linda K. Klein talking with us. Her book is Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. The book came out originally in 2018 in hardcover, but was released in July in paperback. So we thought it'd be a great time to have Linda join us for a little conversation about the book. I know you've been out touring with the paperback a little bit again. I have, yeah. So do you want to give our readers just a really quick synopsis of perhaps, I think, not just only what the book's about, but why you decided to write the book? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, this really is a personal story for me in many ways. I was actually raised in the evangelical Christian church in a Midwestern church and uh, grew up uh, in 1991 joining the community as a seventh grader, completely unaware that I was becoming a member of one of the first classes of young people to have grown up in what's called the purity movement that very quickly spurred a purity industry. So people might have 
uh, heard of or even remember purity rings and purity pledges and purity balls and purity themed books and music and curricula, sort of you name it. It really was an industry that surrounded people who were raised in the white evangelical Christian church, uh, particularly uh, big in the lives of girls uh, between the 1990s and the early 2000s in particular. Now, that having been said, I'll just briefly mention that, of course, the purity movement and the purity industry was built upon a foundation that was well-established in the church and that I would say is well-established in our world of having a very shame-based uh, approach to sexuality, particularly for women and girls. So it was a unique and distinct movement that was built upon a, um, an established societal and religious um, existence that had already been around for a very long time. But what I basically realized is when I ended up leaving the evangelical church, in part because of my experience with the purity teachings and how much shame and fear and anxiety they had engendered in my life, uh, that I was under the impression that I would be free and that I would no longer deal with those things. Mm. And what I realized was that actually when I left, it was the beginning of the real journey because now I had to deal with the internalization of these things. And, um, and once I started to do that work, it actually in some ways got worse because now I was starting to explore my sexuality. I was starting to explore my confidence, all of these things that I had been taught I wasn't allowed to have within my community growing up. And so that exploration ended up triggering experiences that actually mimicked post-traumatic stress disorder, which made me feel completely broken mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. And like, there was just no hope for me and I would never be healthy and never have a healthy relationship. And that really spurred what the book is all about, which was a 12 year journey where I interviewed people who were raised in white evangelical churches like mine around the country, starting with a year in my hometown where I called up all the girls that I'd grown up with in my youth group and asked them about how these purity teachings, how this sort of shaming approach to sexuality, particularly taught within a religious world, had impacted their adult experiences with sex and gender and sexuality. And this process of interviewing became really a healing journey for me and for many of my interviewees. We started to go through what I call a sacred story exchange. And over the course of our stories, I also started to realize that I had been raised in a purity movement, realize that there had been a purity movement, right? right? (laughs) Because when you're a kid, you just think this is the way the world is, right? Um, So it's both a personal story and a report on the impact of abstinence culture in America's evangelical churches and the way in which uh, that culture has shaped our much larger culture around sexuality as a country and as a world. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about it not being just a movement, but an industry as well, you know, one of the statistics that kind of blew me away was the federal dollars as well that have been sunk into abstinence-only education. I think the figure is $2 billion since 1981. And I'm just wondering, at one point you gave a definition of evangelical, and, and you, you, know, you say that's always an exception for every definition. Um, but you talked about evangelicals and their engagement with technology. 
And I'm wondering if you could talk about that if, with the purity movement starting in the 90s. That's when the Internet was starting to get so big. And I'm just wondering how that impacted you and, and some of the women you talked with. Mm, that's a great question. All right. So uh, so who are evangelicals? Uh, what was their engagement with the kind of larger culture and funding, et cetera, and then the internet. Just trying to repeat the various pieces. Um, so so let's start let's start with who evangelicals are. Evangelicalism is a subculture more than anything else, I would argue. You know, there are a lot of different forms of evangelicalism. Uh, there's religious evangelicalism, there's spiritual evangelicalism, there's political evangelicalism. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, whether you are an evangelical or not, I think is is really understood by whether or not you're part of the subculture and the subculture is defined the way that any subculture is. It's, it's defined by, uh, you know, the language that you use and the sort of core way that you look at the world and the people that you hang out with and the books that you read and the music you listen to. So oftentimes, uh, evangelicals wouldn't actually necessarily use that term evangelical, but they would, and they might not even consider themselves evangelical uh, because it's actually so little used on the ground. Um, but they would recognize um, one another based on, for example, the experience of having a born-again experience, uh, the charge to tell others about how they could have a born-again experience so they could go to heaven, so evangelizing, evangelical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those core beliefs, but moreover, you know, are they listening to Dr. Dobson on the radio? <laughs> are they reading Frank Peretti books? Uh, you know, so on and so on. So that's how I define evangelicalism. It's 25% of the country and, uh, and 20% is, is white evangelical, um, culture, which more than 20%, which is what I grew up in. And I draw that distinction because there is, there is, um, so much segregation in religion. And so the sort of racially segregated evangelical look really different from one another. Um, and that's the subculture that really created the purity movement and created the purity industry. And part of that was a really intentional effort, not just to utterly saturate <laughs> the lives of young girls who grew up within this community with this message of more than abstinence, right? It's not just about not having sex before marriage. It's about being sexless, right? right? In your mind and in your heart and in your body, you know, never doing anything that would even get you you know, to the top of the slippery slope. <laughs> and so it really created almost a, a feeling like like you'd like there was no winning, right? Because there was such, there were such strict standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came, you know, in part out of, it had been existent for a long time within evangelicalism, particularly in the more fundamentalist sections of, of evangelicalism. However, we then in the eighties, remember, came into the AIDS crisis, Right. And we were scared as, a, you know, a country and as a world, really. You know, now all of a sudden sex coming out of the sexual revolution was looking really scary. And yeah. so we were thinking as a country about how do we protect young people from AIDS, from STIs, from teen pregnancy. And one of the solutions that was presented was, hey, we've been doing this super conservative thing in our communities <laughs> where we have this like very uh, strict definition for purity and we exchange purity rings and so on and so forth. But again, fringe even within the evangelical evangelicalism at that point. 
And the purity movement, you know, in part was an intentional effort to say, let's bring this to a much wider population. Uh, So there was a lot of intentional lobbying of the government for money, for abstinence only before marriage, emphasis on the word only, right? And uh, and yes, you're right about those funding dollars. Yep, they just kept going up and up and up and up uh, until 2008, which is when it started to be curbed and it started going up again in 2016. Though abstinence only before marriage messaging a um, longitudinal congressional study that took eight years to do showed was essentially ineffective. It doesn't uh, meaningfully change the number of sexual partners that someone has. It doesn't meaningfully change the age at which someone first has sex. So, and that money is really what enabled the both the saturation of the message for people who grew up within the community, because all of a sudden there was a lot of money for that, for that work, but also brought it into public schools, where uh, I hear about lessons in public schools funded by by government money, by both federal and state dollars, that are word for word what I learned in youth group. <laughs> you know, um, it's just exactly the same thing, and brought it into the national into the international scope. So we started to see um, money for AIDS prevention internationally being tied to this abstinence-only funding, um, which was essentially connected to purity teachings. Because I don't know if you all have ever been uh, to a sex educators conference or hung out with sex educators, but it's a pretty progressive group. Right. (laughs) (laughs) there aren't a whole lot of people within that world who are like, you know, the thing that works (laughs) is, is complete sex, like turning off your sexuality until you get married and then turning it back on like a light switch or turning it on for the first time, like a light switch. So when you have mystery of it, there's also just the mystery of it, right? For kids, the mystery of sex. And, um, that's, to just turn that on later in life either. You know, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. Yes. So very true. So very true. Yes. You kind of have this uh, gap between where the funding was and, and is um, in large part for sexuality education and where the majority of the experts have landed, <laughs> um, which means that a lot of the products that are being funded with this money are are folks like the folks that I grew up with, the evangelical purity purveyors. So it's a really sort of interesting moment about how this became something that I really do believe, you know, shaped a generation of young women, though, again, it was built upon a foundation. And I know that we are not the first ones to have ever experienced sexual shame and fear and anxiety and PTSD-like experiences because of what we learned about sexuality in general and specifically in our religious communities. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's just so insidious that it's not just the community, but it's also not the specific community at church, but the the government and and, and, and the, the society at large. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found so touching was the idea that you put forth that women's bodies are considered evil and men's minds are considered evil. So you mm. two together and it, it feels somewhat hopeless that this is what they're, you know, how they're raising children in this movement to feel about themselves. And you really yeah. on the idea of PTSD, which I found really interesting. And I wanted to talk a little bit about neuroplasticity 
the idea you raise about, you know, that so much of this um, message is coming at a time when adolescents' brains are forming and the impact that that has. So could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So we know that adolescents are uh, particularly susceptible to messages around sexuality. Our brains are really plastic around sexuality when we're really young and we're developing attachment, you know, when we're babies, really. Uh, And then again, in adolescence, when we are developing a lot of the ideas that will stick with us for a very long time. And the purity messaging, uh, you know, think about, think about like when you start to talk to kids about sexuality, generally speaking, when in schools, we have our first sex ed, when in churches, we start to target people with sex ed messaging and it's, it's adolescence. Mm -hmm. Um, that is, that is sort of the age that we really double down on. If we only have enough money to do sex ed for one year, we're going to make it seventh grade or eighth grade. (laughs) Um, so that's, and that, and that is definitely the years, those are definitely the years that we really were most inundated with this messaging in the church community. Um, it was starting in adolescence and through to early adulthood. And that's really important because that means whatever you're getting in those years are, um, sort of encoded, right? Your, your neural pathways are, are really shaped. And there's an adage in neurobiology called Hebb's axiom, which basically states neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you have two neurons in your brain firing at the same time, you know, again and again and again, eventually just firing one of those neural pathways, uh, going down one of those neural pathways will automatically send you down the other one. And what I found is that so many of my interviewees, and certainly I experienced what is called a brain trap. So when two, when these two things become so tightly associated in your mind, they become sort of trapped together. Um, it's called a brain trap around sexuality and shame because I had seen myself and others shamed so many times for our sexuality, just again and again and again, had heard so many shaming stories, had internalized so many shaming metaphors. You know, it got to the point where I didn't even need to be shamed by anyone outside of me. You know, just the thought of sexuality or the thought of the possibility that I might have sex out of marriage or any sexual exploration or anything like that would trigger this shame-based response. Mm -hmm. And And what we know from, you know, you were talking about PTSD, what we know increasingly from research on shame is that shame is sometimes held in our bodies in a way that's really similar to trauma. So first of all, when I say shame, I'm not actually talking about bashfulness. I'm not talking about shyness. I'm talking about the research definition of shame, this idea that some researchers say shame is the feeling I am something bad, whereas guilt, for example, is the feeling I did something bad. So it's this sort of who you are, right? People will think I am bad or I will feel I am bad. And when you look at the way that we think about sexuality as a whole, and you really see it in the purity movement, you know, we don't talk about healthy, nuanced decisions you can make, what you do when it comes to sexuality. We talk about who you are. We talk about you are pure or you are impure. You are a good girl or a bad girl, right? 
Right. That's just straight up societal messaging, right? Right. Um, So we have all these labels for people that are generally on a binary and are generally, you know, about worthy or unworthy. Yeah. And so, so that's what I mean when I say shame. So when you internalize this idea, I am something bad, or people will think I am something bad so tightly and it's so tied to your identity, you know, that can really be held in your body in a way that what I started to experience was when sexuality came up, it triggered this sort of like PTSD like response to the internalized shame that was being held in my body like trauma. You know, I started to have nightmares. I started to, I found that I, every time my boyfriend and I, who I had been dating for years and I was in my early twenties, I really, you know, felt like I was in a relationship that I could explore my sexuality with him healthfully. But every time you would even talk about having sex before marriage as a possibility, I would break down into tears and I would be sort of a heap, you know, like, like end up in a ball, you know, my eczema coming out, scratching myself until I bled. And if we ever explored sexuality, I would be, you know, taking pregnancy tests, even though I actually hadn't had sex Mm -hmm. because I had so much fear. And I started to feel like, whoa, what's going on with me? Like, these are, this is not, this is not normal, right? It's not normal for my fear to be so great that I'm doing things that don't even make sense to me, like taking pregnancy tests, though I'm not having sex. Um, And, but then when I started doing these interviews, you know, that's what was so incredible. It was this realization when I started to interview people that I wasn't alone, that actually, that actually these PTSD like experiences and the shame and fear and anxiety that was underneath them, not everyone had them manifest in PTSD-like ways, but the the sort of fear and anxiety were was common among almost all of us. It seems like also the search for what, and I'm using kind of air quotes, a healthy sexual relationship with both mm-hmm. yourself and a partner, right? Yes, I mean, it's yes, like yes. There was definitely, that was something that you all shared in common. Yes, yes. Yeah, we wanted to be we wanted to be healthy. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we sought we sought I think intimacy with ourselves and with partners and others in a way that, you know, that was another thing that came up a lot. We had a hard time with connection in some of us because you know, again, shame, one of the things that shame does is causes us to disconnect. Shame research just is very clear that shame makes us disconnect from ourselves because we can't even look at the thing that we're ashamed of and and has us disconnect from others. We might lash out at them or lash out at ourselves. I'm so bad. I'm so terrible or go into secrecy or withdraw. So shame actually creates a disconnection reaction. And so, yeah, so that was part of it too. You know, we were, we were struggling also with connecting to ourselves and connecting to others in ways that, um, in ways that were really scary and and made me for one really afraid that I would never be a healthy person or have a healthy relationship. So it was with great, it was great with, with great relief that I started to hear that others we're experiencing a lot of these same things. And that was really the beginning in many ways of, of my healing and of the healing of many of the people who I spent those 12 years interviewing. You know, Linda, 
your ex- the experience that you're describing, it so reminds me of my own experience as a young gay person, mm-hmm. feeling shame of being gay, and then also the the inability that that creates to have intimate relationships with uh, with other people or to even be comfortable in one's community. And I was really struck by one point where you're talking um, with one of your interviewees about the gay community not talking about sex, that the message had become all about falling in love and getting married, which is something that people can understand. And I think that was very revolutionary to turn public perception away from focusing on gay sex as being something shameful and disgusting and abnormal to talking more about the humanity side of loving. And Mm. so that was just such an interesting perspective to hear your interviewee talk about how the focus on love and marriage had kind of become a bind in some ways or a double-edged sword, I think, in not talking about sex and sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I think it was revolutionary and I also think it was smart because I think it was, uh, I don't think that we are at a point as a society that we have dealt with our sexual shame to the extent that we could have, that we could have changed people's minds about gay sex, because I don't think we're changing people's minds about sex yet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even the things yeah. that we, you know, there was a, something that went a little viral this week about a trooper. I can't remember where he was located, but there was a headline in the New York Times, I believe, that said Trooper is caught having sex with a 14-year-old in the back of his patrol car. And there was just outrage because he wasn't having sex. He was raping a 14-year-old in the backseat of his car. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there is a lot about, you know, how do we talk about sex? Mm-hmm. How do we handle right. it in culture in general? And, right. and the violence that we have in our culture that, that comes to play, I think, a lot of times because of shame and the suppression of the conversation. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for adding that too. Yeah, these are all things that within the purity movement also disappear. You know, the LGBTQ community would would be non-existent within this frame. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, rape is never talked about. Rape and assault are never talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, abuse. You know, all these things are not part of the narrative. So when those things appear, it intersects. A lot of the the messaging around purity comes into play and fills in blanks where, frankly, it is even less. It's. I mean, I think purity language is never appropriate, but right. it's even less appropriate and even more harmful when it's being inserted into these places, like, for example, rape cases. You know, one of the reasons that I suspect that piece would have been listed the way that it was, you know, had sex with the 14-year-old, is because we tend to, particularly I assume that 14-year-old was a girl because if it wasn't, they wouldn't, they would have named it, you know. Um, But is because we tend to have a narrative as a culture and it's our it's our default narrative in the back of our minds that runs because we have not had nuanced, complex conversations about sexual ethics to the extent that we have deconstructed that and reconstructed something new. And when you haven't done deep deconstruction, the stuff that you learned growing up still runs in the back of your mind, whether or not you want it to, right? And operates invisibly in many of our lives and certainly in society and in policies and in the media and so on and so forth. So, so that narrative would tell us 
that men, as you said before, uh, men's minds are bad and women's bodies are bad. So that is the purity concept that everyone lear- that everyone learns, right? Men are inherently weak when it comes to sexuality, right. and women inherently inspire all sexual thought and feeling. If there were just no women, <laughs> you know, we would have no, you know, no problem with men's monstrous minds if we didn't have women's monstrous bodies. And so therefore it is the responsibility of, of girls and women in particular to hide their sexuality to the extent that it won't bring out the broken mind of a man, right? to cover up, to never be perceived as flirting, to do everything just right, to be perfect, to be pure, right? And the very mere existence of someone having a sexual thought about you or having a sexual feeling about you or taking a quote-unquote sexual action toward you, I say quote-unquote because rape is not a sexual action, it is an act of violence, but is often categorized as a sexual violence because we don't talk about it, so we don't categorize it differently. So anyway, so it's assessed by that framework, right? We look at that framework and we say, well, if something happened to that 14 year old, you know, she must've inspired it, <laughs> you know, it must've in some way yeah. been her yeah. fault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many so, times heard she was really well-developed for a 14 year old, right? which yeah. the yeah. implication there is then, well then, so it's okay for a man to rape a woman. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or even a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's very complicated. It is. Yeah. And it's it's really frustrating um, to think of, you know, how not feeling your feelings and not dealing with the reality of the human body for both men and women comes to the point where you can't feel your feelings. Right. Yeah. And it, it really comes at a cost to society. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing, the one thing I also want to add is, you know, I completely do not believe does anyone anymore that, um, rape only happens, you know, a man toward a woman that is definitely like an old paradigm, but it is, it is one that is the sort of dominant framework that we have and also is fits really neatly into the purity, uh, framework. Well, Linda, when I read this book, I knew that I could probably talk to you about it for hours. It's very thought-provoking. We are just touching, really, on the surface of what there is to talk about here. Sadly, we don't have hours to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. The thing I might add is that, you know, we talked a lot about the core themes, uh, some of the core themes that come up in the book. But really, at the end of the day, the book is just stories. You know, what I really do is I look at people's lives, you know, and so it's a glimpse into how these things touch people's lives. And, and it's not so much about, you know, sort of heady discussions. I didn't want it to be, I just really wanted to show windows into my life and into the lives of all of these other people who have lived this stuff in a way that I think, um, helps us to understand the larger picture, uh, through the specificity of, of these individuals experiences. And I think it was a real gift that you gave to them and to yourself and to readers so that we can understand it. But it also helps in getting back to that idea of neuroplasticity in the idea of healing and how to develop new neural pathways and move forward. And a lot of it is about addressing the idea of shame and feeling like you're not alone and that's the gift that you gave your interviewees and yourself. So I want to thank you for taking the time to write the book and to do all of the research. We do have one last question for you. 
Yeah, we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about your next project, if it's not too early. Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, let me very quickly make a note about neuroplasticity first. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought it back to that because it, I imagine it might have sound, sounded hopeless for a moment when we were talking about the brain right. trap. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it is really important to remember that, yes, our, our brains become more difficult uh, to rewire when it comes to sexuality past a certain age. But our brains are beautifully and magically plastic for the entirety of our lives. And that's why I did this work. You're exactly right. It was the experience of um, of telling my story again and again and again, and then hearing my story told back to me and the stories of others that helped me to start to do kind of like a next level narrative therapy. It wasn't just going through my own story and tying together the fragments in a way that helped me to, to heal and come into a better place, but it was doing it with part of a larger community that gave me a sense of a bigger picture. That is exactly what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm trying to help us to see, you know, to do that. So not everyone has to do 12 years of interviews, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> but you can start to do that separation that helps you to just more insight so that you can start to live into new habits, uh, new thought patterns, new ways of interpreting data, new ways of knowing that over time do pave new neural pathways. Right. And I think really leads to freedom. And that, that has been my experience. Which is In terms helpful. of... Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of my next book project, it's it's really interesting. So this has been such a long journey for me. This has been a journey that I've been on for 14 years, you know, longer if you count my personal experience with it before I started to do interviews. And so it really drowned out all other artistic work, <laughs> you know, because I was working full time uh, in nonprofits the whole time. And so it's been really interesting to engage uh, the next project. And I find myself circling around, you know, a few themes here and there, but I, I'm still sort of circling right now in many ways. But a lot of them have to do with freedom and have to do with reinvention. And some of the themes that I think appear in the book, but that are about much more than sexuality, um, are really questions of what it means to be an authentic woman today. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I feel like many, I wanted to say person, but I feel like a lot of it for me is around this question of having been raised to be a certain way by society, you know, what does it mean to become an authentic person when you were raised with these particular ideas about who you had to be as a, as a girl. So, so those are the kind of themes that I'm circling around. I think there might be a road trip to Montana involved, uh, and to Alaska. Stay wow. tuned for more information on that. We, we will put, um, all of your social media contacts in our show notes so people can follow. And, um, Linda also has a newsletter that you can subscribe to. So maybe you'll get some inside information about, her upcoming work. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Linda. Thank you so much for coming on the book Cougars. We really enjoyed talking with you. I did too. Thank you for writing the book. I really do think it's a wonderful opportunity for people to learn and understand about the purity movement, but also to understand more about shame that's right. Even if you weren't raised in the purity movement, there, I think, are few people who don't see a shade of their experience in this book because this is in many ways kind of a, a picture of what happens when we go deep with messaging that is in the air in our culture. Well, thank All you right. so much, Thanks, Linda. Linda. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. 
To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.